Welcome back again to the Rick Wagner Show here. Getting it right. Your political Viking on KNZZ, KGLN, all across western Colorado, eastern Utah, the Internet in some places, and uh, you, right where you're at. So wherever that is, thanks for joining us. We are very happy to have you here. And uh, I especially appreciate long-term listeners that I run into from time to time. And thanks a lot for the nice things you say, because there's plenty of things you could comment about my technical expertise and so forth that you apparently are nice enough to forgive. <laughs> so thanks a lot. Anyway, I thought we'd talk this week here. Uh, there's a lot, of course, to talk about. I mean, uh, flailing Biden. There's, I don't know why. He's hurling himself to the ground at the uh, Air Force Academy this week. I, I hate to, to laugh at stuff like that because I don't want the guy to get hurt. I mean, I don't want anybody to get hurt. But his, his, his getting up and pointing to a couple of sandbags that do not look like they were in his way at all as the reason he fell down was, I don't know. It's just a long story of his flailing about. And this is just another example of it. And it just, it's not him falling down and not knowing where he's at and his angry ranting at people, and his bizarre arrogance and his intense mediocrity throughout his life that has now manifested itself as a pretty much destructive behavior towards the nation. It's, it's just this, uh, feeling that there's still a lot of people who want to vote for him. <laughs> I can't figure it out. It's like doing these things that is the nation moving in the right direction, you know, and, uh, you get like 20% of the population. Yeah, I think it's doing great. You know, and you're thinking, who are these people? And I guess I don't know enough of these folks. Uh, I don't know where they're at or why they think that, but it's kind of a, it's a strange feeling. But what I thought we'd talk about this week, in addition to a lot of others, and talk about a little bit in this segment, is the rule of law. Now, I've gotten to where when I hear that term, the rule of law, it kind of bothers me a little bit. And that's because so many of the people that use it, I don't think mean the same thing that you and I mean by it. The rule of law in the old days, yeah, 60s, 70s, 80s maybe, uh, meant that there was a reasonable and productive set of laws on the books about behavior. There were bad ones, but for the most part, they were to regulate the bad guys and protect the good guys. And when you talk about rule of law, that's what you were talking about or speaking about, to be a little more formal. These days, I don't think that's the case with many people. When I hear Chuck Schumer, the senator from New York, talk about the rule of law, I don't think he means the same thing that you and I think of. I think he means imposing the power of the state on people that disagree with him. That's what I think. I don't think he's particularly concerned about the rule of law as we see it in terms of lawlessness People being attacked, stores being ransacked, cities becoming unlivable, uh, danger everywhere you look when you get in some of these areas. They're like hot spots on a map of a war zone. I don't think that is the slightest what he's talking about. I think he is talking about a political idea about using the law, changing the law, misinterpreting the law, and don't apply some types of law is what he means. And it means to use the law as a political cudgel and pretty much only as a political cudgel. And I don't think he's alone in that. I just happen to pick him out as a as someone that's what I think he think he believes, based on what he says and the kind of indifference he shows to some things and the vehemence that he shows against some others, January 6th people and this and that. Yet he has absolutely nothing to say about 
things that happened in his own state, in the largest city in his own state, seemed to go just blissfully by his vision without him caring at all. And it makes me wonder what the end game is with with their use of the law. I mean, we've started to hear people use the word lawfare as like warfare. And that's true. It's always been a little bit the case, especially the civil system, where you can endlessly, you know, get involved with somebody. We see it really at its height. We saw it in the environmental movement where, you know, in using the EPA and some of the vague regulations that they were allowed to, you know, run on, which, by the way, Supreme Court rolled those in, which rolled those back, rather, uh, much to the chagrin of Chuck Schumer and others, when they uh, said that you the cannot interpret the EPA's waters to mean things like, oh, I don't know, the puddle in your backyard or the ditch in front of your house. What they were trying to interpret that was to get rid of the word navigable. And we talked about this way back, I mean, you know, maybe five or six years ago when they were first working on this. And this was trying to change the definition of navigable waterways or just take it out of their uh, mission statement. Because navigable essentially means that you'd be able to put a boat on it, right? I mean, navigate it. You can, you know, use it for trade or things like that. And they've been trying to get rid of that, and they were trying to codify that into their rules to say, essentially, anything that was navigable or connected to a navigable body of water was within their purview. Now, think about that. Run the, if, if you're someplace and you're in the country and you have a, uh, Oh, let's say a diversionary ditch uh, that diverts off a canal. And the canal draws water off of a river, right? Well, then, if you follow that logic, then that ditch or diversionary ditch or wastewater ditch that goes back to the river, right? All of these connect to navigable waterways, which would mean that the EPA would try and get authority over what was happening on those bodies of water. The Supreme Court, interestingly enough, in a 9-0 decision, I, I was surprised that a couple of these justices even knew what a, a ditch or other, other type of water besides, you know, the coast or a beach was. They all agreed that that was an overreach on the part of the EPA, which made the left out there say things like this MAGA court and <laughs> I had to laugh. To get a nine, you gotta have Sotomayor, Katenji, Brown, Jackson, uh you know, those those are the two <laughs> the two worst on there. They've got to be on board. And uh a couple of the others as well. And for them to call that a MAGA court just kinda of cracks me up. But that's because they realize that they need to delegitimize the court and if you know some of their people our collateral damage, that's okay. So they're going to go after the whole court because they want the half listeners in America, people who get their news from TikTok or, you know, probably the most learned place they get it might be Politico or uh, the, the Huffington Post or the Daily Beast. The people who are just half listening to everything and getting it biased anyway to just hear the word megacourt, 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 you know, these these people are these these conservatives are running wild on this court because they want to delegitimize it. And they, if they ever get an opportunity to push through something through the Senate again to try and pack the court, change the amount of justices, they're going to do it. 
They would have done it this time if it, if it wasn't for cinema and to some and, and mansion, who I think is in real trouble. And and I think that's fine with me. He's held the line. I'll give him credit for that. But as always with Manchin, he holds a line, and then something comes along, and he falls over. He's unreliable, and they need to get rid of him. And the former governor there in uh, West Virginia, um, Justice, is uh, leading the polls right now. And Manchin supposedly managed to free up his pipeline deal that he thought he had when he went behind everybody's back and did the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, went along with that piece of nonsense that's still causing inflation and wasting everyone's time and money and harming people who can least afford to be harmed by this inflationary spiral. And he didn't get what he asked for. Remember, he was supposed to get this this gas pipeline. Now, seemingly, to, if he for going along with the uh, debt ceiling, he's going to be getting the gas. And we'll see if that actually happens. I mean, it's not, I don't think, enough to save him in West Virginia. I just think that his feet of clay have been shown to everybody. But we need to speak a little bit about what everyone's talking about, the law anymore, the rule of law, and what what do they mean by that? I'm very concerned about this use of, of lawfare because it's not, it's left the civil side and moved into the criminal side and the power of the state. We'll be back. I'm not sure that's exactly a bumper for those who listen to the podcast. I played the old shadow from the radio show. I have a friend, by the way, that decided he, he thought that was a cool old show and he's been listening to, he's, he found a source to listen to these old radio programs. And in, in some of the, uh, you, you can buy, I think go online. I think it's radio spirits and stuff like that. Um, they can, uh, some of the old radio and the shadow is very good, by the way. So is inner sanctum and a bunch of others out there. And he's been listening to them, and he's been very impressed. But uh, the shadow did know what evil lurked in the hearts of men. And I'm beginning to think we do, too. Not because we're so insightful, although I think we are pretty insightful. It's because they don't hide it anymore. <laughs> and so that's when we get into this discussion we left off in the last segment about the rule of law. Because they're sort of signaling what they're going to do. I mean, it's very clear, isn't it? I mean, look at what's going on with President Trump. Is is that a use of the law as you would ever intended to be just to harass him from one end of the country to the other and keep bringing something up in different jurisdictions. And the jurisdictions are always places that he is pretty vulnerable because people there voted against him. Is it a surprise that you want to bring something up in the District of Columbia? Come on. What about Manhattan, where he's been charged? (laughs) I think that's working well for him there. And if they do something in Georgia, it's going to be in Atlanta which most of Georgia is pretty good Trump country, but they're going to bring it up someplace where any jury panel they get are not going to be Trump voters, really not Trump voters. They're not going to bring this up, say, let's uh, let's try Trump in West Virginia, <laughs> you know, where uh, he won by 40 points. Let's try and f- see how he does in, uh, let's say, in Texas. And I don't mean Austin. <laughs> you know, that's that's not going to happen. So that's not really the rule of law, is it? Because it has no sense of equity in it. See, this is where equity actually has a meaning that we can hold on to. You stick equity into your jobs, into your distribution of income, all that kind of stuff. It means forced equality or forced, let's just say, reparations. In other words, to try and get what people imagine is going to make things equal. But in the law, 
you you want courts even are called courts of equity where they try and balance out things so that the end of the end of things are fairly balanced so in the law equity has a purpose and it is a slightly different definition than when you try and insert it into college admissions or anything like that where really what you should be talking about cuz is about equality of opportunity not equity in result courts give results you go to court to get a result if we had equity at the front end in courts we would be deciding who was allowed to use the courts based on some formula or how many people you know were more disadvantaged than others should get advantage to use the courts before others do but equity in the law and the courts is not at the front it's at the end that's a different kind of equity that's that's being removed by this use of it and since it's crept into the criminal courts now to where we now use the criminal courts as a cudgel against political opponents always a very very dangerous thing i've said for a long time that the minute your population decides that they cannot trust the outcome of the justice system everything is in the hazard now when you couple that with not trusting elections or being skeptical of them that's not just in the hazard you are definitely living in hazardous times and we're there now so when you look at this you not only see this use of law against political opponents you see it's non-use against political friends or trusted groups or groups that you're trying to buy favor with for whatever reason and we've always seen this let's just not pretend that there hasn't always been uh, inequality in the application of the law based on social status uh, your uh, monetary status uh, who you know nepotism you know cronyism whatever it is it's always been and it's it's been that since uh, the time of nebuchadnezzar you know so we can't pretend like this is a new phenomenon however it's so rigorously applied now and what used to be something that happened periodically sort of on the sly now happens in front of everyone and in fact is sometimes celebrated the defund the police is more than just the police it goes as we know into the prosecution and into the way the courts handle things and the devaluation of certain types of crime to where it is pointless to charge people with petty misdemeanors for stealing from a store because nothing's going to happen to them they've probably got 20 other petty misdemeanors and this is not a problem for them and it doesn't look like you're going to catch them and do anything to them anyway and also it doesn't look like you're going to stop them right we see some of these people going in and out of stores with baskets i mean sometime this week i want to say it was wednesday or thursday i saw some video of people in home depot and i can't remember which city it was at but uh, home they were just put, piling things in carts and walking out now who's paying for that of course you're paying for that the stockholders of home depot are paying for that the employees at Home Depot eventually are paying for that, too. If the store doesn't have enough money, it's certainly not going to give them raises. And who does that really help? Well, by giving them the green light, the idea in their, these little twisted lizard brains that people on the far progressive have is they're somehow winning them over. See, we're treating you right. We know that you're disadvantaged. Some The reason you want to steal these things is because uh, the system, the patriarchy, whatever it is that you're railing on about is oppressing you 
but we are protecting you. We're not going to let the system and the patriarchy and the systemic racism or whatever else we're yakking on, as I said, harm you. So you should support us. So what they're really saying is we're going to let you take things without paying for them because we think you'll vote for us. That's really what it comes down to, right? All this other stuff is just is just babble and it justification. It's like saying that the Soviet Union was uh, communist. No, it wasn't. They called themselves communists. They had communes and all that. But they had very little to do with communism as envisioned by Marx and Engels. It was just a suit of clothes they put on. Most of these policies are just that. They're just costumes to put on to cover up just power. Being able to get power, access to power, access to money, access to the ability to do what you want. It's a costume. And we see it more and more. And by allowing that to happen, it also gives rise to this sense of lawlessness. Now, we've talked about, you know, the broken windows theory in New York and this and that. Some people make fun of it, but it, it's actually quite effective. Is that when there is a sense of wild disorder, when everything is out of whack, you know, windows are being broken, bums are running into the street and demanding money from cars. And, you know, you name one thing or another. And even though many of these are not serious crimes, although they feel pretty serious what's happening to you, they create a sense of disorder. And so because of this order, this sense of stability, by definition, diminishes. And the idea that the mores and sensibilities that we've built up in society are, are crumbling right in front of you, right? We look at it, it looks lawless. Well, if it looks lawless, maybe I should try something else. Maybe I should stick somebody up. Maybe I should uh, get a couple of my friends and grab somebody and steal their stuff. You know, that kind of thing. And it's happening. And it releases the lowest common denominator in people, which is taking things by violence and venting whatever feelings you have on others because you believe there's no consequences. And I just I just read something, yeah, I think it was Thursday, uh, from a, might have been Friday, no, it was Thursday, we just caught my eye. This is stories out there about, and this was in Oklahoma City. This is not exactly like happening in Los Angeles or something. And a couple were unhappy at a Sonic drive-in because they got a hot dog that had jalapenos on it. They apparently had ordered it without jalapenos. So they went and confronted the manager of this place, which I, I would suspect I didn't really see. The age was probably a young, a young person. And they, according to the article, were body slamming him <laughs> to him, a male and a female, had attacked this guy, beat him up, body slamming him, this and that. And police, you know, finally arrested them. But the fact that they felt like it was okay over some jalapenos. And how many of these videos have we seen now? Because remember, everything's videoed. I mean, just assume that you're on camera every place you're at. Uh, these videos of people attacking people at McDonald's, you know, workers, this and that. Because they didn't get the ketchup, their order was wrong, they wanted this or that. I saw one at Chipotle, I think, the other day that there was a film from someplace where a person was unhappy and was ripping things off the counter and throwing them around and so forth. Now what, what does, not what makes people do that. People have impulse control, they're natural problems, they're violent, whatever, they're not socialized individuals, they're feral, right? And so, we kind of get that piece of it. But what used to hold them in check and doesn't hold them in check now? Well, it's consequences. I mean, I, I'm not a genius here. You guys know all that. 
And so when they're, they're being told every day now that there's not consequences, and this releases that feral activity from them. They don't care about about societal rules or people look down on them for attacking somebody. By golly, they, they they're going to get their way, and and maybe in their in their culture that where they're where they're at with their friends or whatever the case might be, looking tough and attacking somebody makes them seem like, hey, you know, he's got it going on. You know, he's not going to put up with anything. Because there's, no, there's nothing to hold them back. And they feel that they can act out that way and get whatever they want out of it, feel better about it, or show off to their friends, or, or just let loose their natural, unbalanced mental state, because nothing's going to happen. That's an absence of the rule of law. Hey, everybody, we're back. Thanks for hanging on over the old uh, break there. During the uh, time between the episodes here... A crew of uh, obvious haters of talk radio have set up outside the studio and have been running some sort of mechanism out there quite loud and sort of a suction device. Actually, it's a compressor running something. I can't quite see what it is. I've tried my vaunted uh, Vulcan mind control uh, efforts uh, focus on them. It hasn't been very effective. I'm wondering if they're wearing a hard hat or something and my, my mental powers are not able to penetrate it, but... I'll have to push on. So if you hear sort of a droning sound in the background, it isn't me, <laughs> nor is it my brain working, which I think some people might believe that might be the case. No, that has more of a cog-like sound to it, sort of as though you hold a uh, a microphone up to a badly functioning old wristwatch. That would be the sound. But we're back, and we'll just uh, ignore these guys, and I've made some adjustments here to try and minimize the noise they're making out there. So we're back. We're still talking about the rule of law and things, and law encompasses a lot of things. Um, of course, we'd like to be safe. That's uh, not a big deal, apparently, uh, to politicians now, because you see, and this is a little hard to understand, they're safe, so they don't care. I know it's uh, it's a difficult concept for us all to wrap our heads around, but they're kept safe. You know who keeps them safe? Us. Yes, that's right, because we pay for their security. If you'd like to see an interesting uh, little take on that, you might see how Cori Bush, a congresswoman uh, from, I believe she's from the St. Louis area, uh, has spent a lot of money on personal security at the same time wanting to defund and eliminate the police. And you may also recall that she was in a little spot of ethical problems where she had, must have been dating because she subsequently married uh, the person who was running her security that she paid, I think, oh, I'd have to look it up, but it's a lot of money too. Uh, that, of course, that she needed. And if you'd like to just be a little bit more annoyed, you could look up on the Internet some of the comments she made about why she spent all this money on personal security and how that, of course, somehow was the fault of racism. And when you think about it, we're paying for all of this, but we're also paying for things to protect us. And we don't seem to be able to affect that very much. Now, those of you that are fortunate enough, like we are here, to at least be able to vote for your sheriff, have a big leg up on that. Many who are living in cities and municipalities, in that sense, that are operated by a city council, maybe a mayor, there's something you can do because every election season, the mayors that are directly elected mayors get a little scared if there's a lot of things going on and you know, try and pretend like they're going to address the crime problem and go down to their political pointee, which is what the police chief is, and uh, rail at them a little bit to clean it up until after the election. And then let it go back to whatever it was before, hoping that people have very short memories. 
apparently do in some of these cities. Now, we saw how that blew up in the face of Chicago, where Lori Lightfoot, former mayor of Chicago, let the city become pretty much a war zone. You were certainly in large parts of the city safer in um, probably in Kabul, at least used to be, (laughs) before we left, than you were there. So they decided that they were going to, you know, try and get rid of Lori Lightfoot, which they did. And then the runoff, they had the choice between a gentleman who was pretty pro-police, actually sounded like he was actually pro-police as opposed to what's going on in New York with that, uh, you know, high-class celebu mayor uh, who claimed to be supporting the police because he came from the police department, but I don't believe his career there was all that uh, connected to wanting to be a policeman. I don't know. It, it, he doesn't seem to have that. But he does like to dress up and go places and get picture taken and head out to the Met Gala and all that fun stuff. And the actual work of the job, it's more of a kind of a doing press. That's pretty much his job. But, yeah, so they had this guy that was pretty good, and then a character who was actually worse than Lori Lightfoot, a real far leftist. And everybody in the country that was on the left, far progressive left, started pouring in. And this Brandon Johnson, who's the new mayor there, who was the far left candidate, got elected. It wasn't a huge move. I mean, it was kind of encouraging to see that a person that was sensible almost became mayor in New York, uh, Chicago. If you think about it, it is depressing on the other side of the coin because person who would have probably helped the city and done some good, in fact, didn't win. But anyway, this guy's even worse. Now, if you have the right sense of humor or are slightly intoxicated, that can be pretty funny, especially if you have no plans to go to Chicago, have no family in Chicago, no friends in Chicago, and want to avoid reading about what's happening in Chicago because you will start feeling sorry for strangers if you read what's going on in Chicago. But Nevertheless, it shows you the power of a big political machine. And the rule of law in Chicago has always been a little iffy because the rule of law was pretty much what the mayor said ever since Mayor Daley, and probably before that, but he really solidified it. But I don't mean Richard Daley. I mean his dad, the original Mayor Daley, who kept the city pretty much in his left pocket. However, you were pretty safe. And as much corruption as there were, there was rather, uh, it still mattered that people felt safe. Mayor was still afraid that if people didn't feel safe, it was going to be a problem. That went away under his son, and then it has been drifting further and further into the uh, sort of uh, Sudan kind of situation that's there now. So there is no real rule of law there. There's just the misapplication of law for the benefit of the political power. That's not the rule of law. That's ruling people through the use of law. And the law isn't supposed to be a technique of ruling. It's supposed to be a technique of governance. And in our country, that means it is supposed to be something that derives from the consent of the governed. This, of course, is not happening. You don't get consent. You just get apathy and people getting the heck out for the most part. And that enables this to happen. And then despair. People who don't think that they can do anything about it and just try and make the best of it. That's the most sad piece. And we're starting to see that more and more in some of these places. So as we, as we move through this, we, we see how the, the perversion of the law just continues and how the law can be both a weapon to fight crime or a weapon to get rid of political enemies or one to bring on serious social change. 
Now, some people would think that, oh, that's what it should do. It should get social. No. The law should not be social change. If society wants to change and we have a majority, although I don't like rule of the majority, I don't like the whole, uh, you know, Athenian democracy thing, uh, direct, you know, democracy. But if we have through representation and re- Republican democracy, this small r, republic, uh, then if the social mores change, then the laws can evolve, and I hate using that word because been, it's been misused so much, to reflect that. When you turn that upside down and you get lunatics in charge who realize that most of the country does not go along with their ideas, but much of it is pretty apathetic and resisting them, then you take the law and start imposing it from the top down. There's not an organic beginning from the law changing with society or mores or, you know, let's, let's take alcohol consumption. We had prohibition in the United States. It didn't go very well. People didn't like it. It didn't turn out nearly like they thought it was going to. And it gave rise to a whole lot of criminal organizations that were not really that big before prohibition. They're mainly in gambling and, you know, some other sordid affairs. Now, of course, the government's pretty much in gambling. Uh, but they were that. But alcohol then organized them in such a way that they became very prosperous. And when alcohol became re-legalized, as we know, these criminal organizations were in, were in place and began to look for another product because they had the organization to distribute something. They got into drugs. Now, perhaps if we had not had prohibition, the drug problem would not have grown like it did. What we did was we had huge organizations that made a lot of money selling an illicit substance, and in this case, one that lots of people wanted. Then that market was taken away from them, and yet they had the organization. I mean, they were able to sell illicit uh, illicit alcohol for a long time. They were able to bring it in and not get it taxed so they could sell it cheap. Still going on, by the way. Pretty big business. People bringing alcohol into the United States uh, and not getting a tax. Because I think someone told me once, that seemed knowledgeable on this, that almost half of some of the bottles of alcohol, we used to call hard alcohol, you know, bourbon, vodka, stuff like that, was taxed. And so if you can cut half of that half out of the price, you still got a pretty good profit. And you can do it in such a way that, once again, it's like the marijuana problem. If you put a false tax stamp on it, the possession of the alcohol itself is legal. So it becomes very fungible, and you can cart it around and sell it, and people don't know the difference between the tax stamps on it, and you don't have enough people investigating false tax stamps, then it's still a pretty darned lucrative business. It sort of flies under the radar because we're a nation of hysteria with our media anymore, so we only pay attention to what is happening that day. You know, whatever has frightened the uh, media chickens in the coop and have them flying around and banging into the wire and stuff like that, whatever that is, that's what we know about. The other stuff fades quickly. So that's still a pretty good deal. So you can see how changing the law uh, in the middle of like a social upheaval can affect many things. I really do wonder sometimes if we hadn't had prohibition how fast we would have developed these huge uh, distribution networks for narcotics. I, I think it was would, it's, would be a pretty interesting thing to see. I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened. I'm just saying it might have happened differently, slower, and we've gotten a little more control over it than what we were able to do now. But anyway, 
that's in the past, but I think it would be nice to know because by studying those things in the past gives us some idea about what happens now, right? So here we are, and I'm in Colorado, as many of you know, and obviously a lot of you are listening here on the radio, and those of you listening on the podcast may or may not be there or on the Internet. But we have a far-left legislature and governor in Colorado. We are very similar uh, to what's going on in Washington and Oregon, particularly Oregon. Uh, who wants to become part of Idaho? <laughs> you know, about half the state wants to wants to split off. We've talked about Western Colorado splitting off from the Eastern Slope of Colorado since I don't know how long, and for various reasons. One, they're stealing our water, and then this and that, and then as they became more and more disconnected with the values and caring about what's going on in Colorado in terms of costs uh, to the taxpayers and so forth on the Western Slope. I think that's even gotten more. I mean, look at our roads and bridges here. Uh, what we hear all the time in Colorado and many of you other other states too, it's just constant, right? That oh, we need to raise taxes. We need to just because of, we've got to do infrastructure repair. How many of you on the western slope of Colorado or eastern Utah, you have just in an observational sense, you drive our roads, uh, have seen significant improvements in road and bridge construction? You've seen some, but think about how much money we're paying. I have heard that the budget for, I think, north, we would be in northwestern section of Colorado, where I'm at, has not changed significantly for decades. And yet, the population's gone up, people are using the roads more, but most of the money is spent on the front range. And a tremendous amount of it, if you look into it, are spent in that corridor from uh, I-70, that runs uh, up towards the mountains. Everybody wants to leave Denver because it's become a, well, it's become horrible. But uh, it isn't yet San Francisco, but it would love to be, apparently. So the money's not even going where we spent, where we're thinking it's supposed to go. So many people, why not become you know part of Utah? Well, because I'm beginning to wonder what's going on in Utah anymore. We got Romney as a senator. I know I, I lambast all the time, but I understand you people that are listening. Most of you would not vote for Romney. You got a weirdo for a governor, as near as I can tell. And I don't know. Maybe we need to. Is it possible to become part of Florida from half a country away? I just that would be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? Just maybe if we could do like cities do and annex a like a two foot wide piece that would pass through maybe Oklahoma, Texas, then Louisiana. Mississippi, and then just touch it, and just that, then we would become part of Florida. I don't know. I wish we could do that. Cities do that all the time when they try and uh, attach themselves to valuable pieces of property. In other words, things that have sales tax revenue with them. Why can't we do that as a state? I just don't think they'd let us. But uh, I don't think the cities ought to be able to do that either, so I guess that's fair. Anyway, so what's going on here in our laws beyond what we're talking about here, which is public safety? Well, I was looking here in Colorado, and... Please don't pretend, or th- not pretend, but don't think, if you're in another state, that this sort of thing isn't happening there, because it very likely is, unless you're in Florida and possibly Texas. Some cities in Texas are doing this, too, by the way. Uh, here in Colorado, we have a governor that uh, is, well, he is the three-dimensional version of Charlie Brown. Uh, he is the round-headed kid who somehow became governor. And... He pretends to be kind of, I'm kind of a centrist, you know, kind of a libertarian. (laughs) I don't know what sort of people believe that. 
Anyway, so we have some bills setting this desk now that came floating out of our legislature in the last few days of the session. And these are bills that have to do with rental properties. Now, one of the things that, of course, we hear howling about all the time, affordable housing, affordable housing, affordable housing. And it is, of course, mainly from groups of people that are raising the cost of housing all the time through their regulation and costs imposed on developers and builders. And also just plain taxation. And then the same meeting, they will turn around, there's nothing affordable. And and then also imposing all sorts of craziness on uh, trying to do developments and so forth. I mean, if you don't want it, that's fine. But don't complain about the fact that when you limit the amount of availability, the price goes up. I don't know if you ever, if anybody that says that ever took a class on economics. If they did, they were sound asleep or probably high, would be my guess, with some of the people in the legislature. But here's some of the bills we have waiting for the for the governor's signature. Now, I was reading this. This came from the uh, Colorado Springs Gazette, which is which is a pretty good paper to read if you're going to read newspapers, unlike the ones in most of our communities. This is House Bill 231120. Now, they call for mediation prior to evictions. Now, what would happen to this? Well, it's going to slow down the turnover of rental units from current tenants, and I'm quoting this from the from the Gazette, who aren't paying rent to new ones who are able to. The extended period is, of course, lost income to the landlords, and there's going to be rent, rent increases because it's going to slow everything down. As one of my uh, property professors said in law school once, how do you get these jaspers out? Now, if you're a landlord, that sort of thing runs through your head all the time. But you see, if you're on the far left, landlords are bad people. Just any of them. Just, ooh. So, then there's the other one. It was a Senate bill. Wow. It caps the income. You know, if people are trying to set up a minimum income requirement for their apartments because what they found is that people don't make any money or enough money, can't afford the apartments, they get in there, they get behind in their rent, and then they can't get them out for a while. I mean, so they want to know if they have the income requirements. They want to have the government get involved and put a cap on minimum income requirements that landlords use to ensure a tenant can afford the rent. Now, what's going to happen with that? It's going to cause more evictions because... They're going to get people in there that can't pay. And some people know they can't pay, but know they can stay there because it takes a while to get them out. And if the bill we talked about just before this, which is all about having mediation and so forth, that slows that process down, they're going to get to stay even longer. So minimum income requirements, talk about getting in your business. This is literally, if you're a landlord, in your business. Here's another one that is, and I understand people's thinking on this, but it's still, it's still somewhere private property. It puts a limit on deposits and fees for pets. Uh, I don't know exactly how the government can decide what it costs to have a fee for a pet. Now, if you have a cat that's smaller, I understand that with all pets you have problems with, you know, uh, bathroom issues. But, you know, having a couple of you know, Great Danes or a pussycat and that are, is a different thing in terms, of, in terms of money. And so if somebody wants to come in and say, I have three Great Danes and I live in a 600-square-foot uh, apartment, is there a problem with that? Well, if you were the landlord and you say, you know, I'll run it to you, but i got a pretty damage deposit. So these babes start jumping through the windows and so forth. I have enough money to cover it. You won't be able to do that because they're going to limit the deposits and fees for pets. I, you know what's going to happen next? 
is that there's going to be more people who won't let any pets in. And people who have pets that would be willing to give damage deposit because their pets are well-behaved and they're responsible people can have an even harder time finding a place to bring their pets. What will happen is if they start doing away with apartments that allow to have pets or so forth, then people are going to not get them. There will be less adoptions out of, you know, shelters. Or people are going to give up their pets when they have to move, which is a terrible thing. I don't... I don't understand how these characters cannot see the consequences of these actions. Now, that's the thing. With the law, there are always consequences. And you can't fix something without damaging something else when you pass laws. That's why it's difficult to see just a plethora of bills coming through. The more you have, the more freedom gets chipped away. And the last one is is a new one that's this governor has to veto this one, HB 231190. What it does, it gives any Colorado municipality the right or first refusal in purchasing any apartment complex or multifamily residential property. In other words, if you put something up for sale, this is from them, also from the Gazette, that's multifamily or apartment complex, the municipality has the right to buy that first before a private buyer. I'm going to let that just sit there for a second. First of all, how do you establish a price? I'm a little aware that it's going to end up being like like a taking where there's going to be an appraisal process and then the city will decide based on the appraisal process and you can probably mediate it or something what the price will be. Secondly is what will happen next. Well, apparently it's thought that these not-for-profits will be handed the management of these places that the cities will buy. Now, the Gazette posts, uh, posits it rather, that what will happen if they do that is you're, you're going to get the whole rental market is going to be a problem, right? What you're going to get is rentals that are going to get run down that are going to be full of people that probably can't be evicted or won't be evicted I mean, there's, it's going to be a government agency. You know how well that runs, right? If you think the problem's bad, wait till you see their solution. Now, if you are looking at investing in an apartment or complex or something that people apparently need of some, why would you do it? That is the problem with too much law. We'll be back next week.